North South Connection Podcast Network. Welcome to the final edition of the year that was. The podcast series counting down every single year in WWF, WWE pay-per-view history based on a litany of arbitrary categories. So this project started in February of 2020 and it's finally concluding awfully close to February 2022. It's so crazy to me that we're here. See, in January 2017, I was super bored. I was in Vancouver for work. So I started re-watching the 2016 catalog of WWE pay-per-views. And then when I finished those, I was like, you know, I don't really have a catalog of or, or, or a record of all these matches, like WWF matches for myself. So I kind of started this kind of three-year journey. I would watch every pay-per-view year from start to finish. I didn't watch them in chronological order. That would have driven me insane. And in January 2020, I completed uh, my watch, ending with 2010, which was awful. It's so bad that it ended up being the second worst pay-per-view year in company history. There's no way I could have watched them in chronological order. I mean, I, the idea of doing 2006 to 2010 in a row would have just broken me. And even with better years, like, I mean, even like doing like 2015, 16, 17, 18, which are all good in-ring years... I can't tell you how burnt out I was after doing a year like 2018. 2018 finished high. It's in the top 10. But I was just so burnt out because it was like, oh, like it's just so much of the same. So that's kind of how I broke it down. It was kind of a random arbitrary order. But the culmination of this watching is where we are today. And today we are unveiling the best pay-per-view year in company history. 1987. Now, I know this seems a bit strange uh, for it to win, seeing there's only two pay-per-views this year. But I think that the, the lesson for me here, and this is something I've noticed as I watch modern WWE a lot, is that sometimes in wrestling, less is more. And I hope that as we go through the, ca- the categories, it'll become clear why this year was able to prevail. Throughout this project, too, uh, I've said that it took me a long time to figure out the parameters. Because I needed to find a system that wasn't completely swayed by match quality. Because whenever I did that, it really favored any year that had an NXT in it. So like 2016, in particular, 2015, 16, and 18 would constantly dominate the top five until I kind of tried to balance it. Because, you know, it didn't make sense to me that these were in the top five because they never felt like top five years. So I kind of finessed the thing until I got a system where it kind of favored looking at all the different categories, it favored character work and stuff like that. However, no matter how I sliced it, 1987 always won. Any system I put in place, 87 prevailed. And with the system I I finally settled on, which is the one I've been basing this entire project on, it won big. See, my point system is such that, like, if you have the best WrestleMania of all time, so in this... In this project, uh, JT and I, we had it as the, we had WrestleMania 19 as the best WrestleMania of all time. So that will give you a score of one point. The worst WrestleMania of all time, which I think is WrestleMania 32, uh, that gives you a score of 36 points. So, and every category is that way. If, If you were the best, you got like one point. If you're the worst, you got 36 points. So the whole thing here was that the lowest score would actually win. Now, most of the positions, like the difference between the positions was really a handful of points. So, like, I'm sure you've heard me say a bunch of times, like, oh, man, if only this year it had just a better WrestleMania, it would have been X, Y, Z and moved up. So looking at the top five of the, of the years we've done, 
1989 finished, uh, it, it, 1985 ended up finishing fifth and it beat 1998 by one point. 1992 beat 1989 by three and a half points. 2001 beat 1992, four and a half points. 1997 did substantially better than 2001 by a 16 point margin. That's huge. But 1987 killed 1997 dead. It beat it by 24 and a half points. And I think it's because everything is just too meaningful in 1987. The matches are too important. And the three divisions were treated with reverence and respect. And that's always going to score high for me. Now, before we go at it on this last episode, I just, I have to take a second to thank each and every one of you who helped me make this project what it is. First of all, big thank you, JT Rosero and Chad Campbell, both of whom I'm, you know, I talk at length about how, how much I love JT as a friend, but both of these guys are, I'm really privileged to call them my friends. When I floated the idea about a show like this to them, I had no idea what they would say. It's me talking for an hour, right? Who knows if anyone's going to listen to that, but without any, without, without any hesitation, at least that they shared with me, but without any hesitation, they both said, go for it. And their support has been unwavering since the start. And I don't think you guys will ever really understand um, how much your kind words about it meant to me. Because in a lot of ways, you're both podcasters that I looked up to, you know, and um, and that I continue to look up to and respect. And so to, to hear great things from you, man, that that's what kind of pushed me forward. I also want to thank anyone who has reached out with comments and suggestions and I'm so happy that I found like I found new friends through this project. And I, look, I don't know if this project is a direct result, but over the course, I love that guys like Ryan Gray, Johnny C, Rocco Martone, uh, Marcus Fuller. These are guys that like I chat with on a regular basis now. And you know, I'm really happy that you guys came into my life. Anybody who reached out at any point um, it, it really touches me, you know. And the conversations I've had with everyone have really been an incredible boon to my fandom. I mean, guys like Tim Capel, you know, who would drop me a line about something they like or, or Pratt and I's discussions about Bret Hart. <laughs> I mean, look, these are the moments that made it worth it. I had great talks with Jeffrey Thomas, with Dave Hall. Um, I got some amazing support on Twitter from Robert Silva. I can't tell you how much that means to me, Robert, like that you would help and share the stuff that I'm doing. It's really great. I mean, look, I could go on and on. I could name every person that wrote in. I really appreciated everyone that wrote in um, and, and wrote comments. It really enhanced the show. Um, but if I keep naming people, I'm going to forget, and I don't want to forget everyone. So know that you're all there and know that I appreciate you all. You've, you've enriched the project and in a lot of ways made it imperative for me to finish. So thank you to every single person that participated. All right, so our first category uh, with which we are judging these years is match quality. And 1987 out of 36 positions finishes first. Now, if you told me at the start of this project that 1987 would finish first in match quality, I would have said, what? Or how? Or wait, I actually finished this thing? But it does. And the reason why it does is, is, is really to me as clear as day. Zero bad matches this whole year. So I'm sure over the course of this 36 episode odyssey, I've mentioned that for me, a bad match starts at two and a quarter stars or lower. And the lowest match ranked in 1987 clocks in at two and a half. Now, yes, there's only 16 matches for the whole year across two shows. But honestly, it is miraculous to me that nothing dips below the mediocre range. And the more I watch the old stuff, the more I realize that 
we really don't have a lot of old-style professional wrestlers anymore. Guys were brought up on Shawn Michaels instead of Arn Anderson, and I think it shows in the product. And you know how I feel about Shawn Michaels. I love his work. But I feel like it really just worked for him. In fact, I'm going to throw uh, something out here. I think if Bret Hart was more prominent than Shawn Michaels, we would be in a much better place in terms of in-ring product. Now, when we go back to these old matches, matches in this era might be boring sometimes, but they never do anything to expose the business. Just watch their punches. Not one guy throws a punch that doesn't look like an actual punk. Yes, yes, a guy like Honky Tonk Man would convulse around the ring like some sort of hemophiliac, but it fit within the time. Hell, the lead star would convulse, and the result is that he becomes invincible. Are convulsions having uh, the key to having zero bad matches? Well, correlation does not equate causation, but here the fuck we are, right? A quarter of the 1987 matches are great. That wins by a landslide. It's huge over anything. The only thing that comes close is 2018 with a fifth, and that has the full power of NXT driving the year. All in, 46 Excuse me, 56% of the matches are at least good in 87, and everything else is just mediocre. These men, these men are coming. No, these men were trying their best to convince you that they were fighting. Well, most of them. I mean, Hogan was clearly trying to sell you on the merits of cocaine. But besides him and the other asshole flapping his arms like a bird, everyone else is doing their best to make you believe they're really fighting. I don't really have a ton much to say about the matches because we'll end up talking about much of them. So look, here we go. As you know, the worst match of the year. <clears throat> we always deal with the worst match. And I went back and watched it. And that match is from WrestleMania 3, the Killer Bees versus the Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov. And as you already know, I have it at two and a half stars. So I, I threw it on. And right away, I'm sure this isn't bad. Um, but in the spirit of tradition, let's give it a watch. It's weird that it's the second to last match on this card. So, I mean, I, I don't see how long this could possibly be. And then we start with Jim Duggan getting angry and interrupting the rendition of the Soviet National Anthem. And here's my question. Why didn't the Iron Sheik ever sing the Iranian National Anthem? I mean, look, he, he was speaking words in some of his incredible, insane rants. I'm also be, I'd also be curious to know if Go Fuck Yourself is a lyric, because that's clearly the most used sentence in his vocabulary. And what a blatant disrespect on behalf of Jim Duggan shitting on the anthem. Like, imagine you're at a hockey game, and then Cam Neely jumps on Robert Goulet and beats the crap out of him as he's singing O Canada. Where, where on earth would you ever see an anthem interruption other than pro wrestling? And Duggan, too, is like, this is the land of the free! But why isn't Nikolai free to sing about his homeland? Like, he clearly, Nikolai clearly likes America. He kind of says shit, but he lives there. He could go back. You know, I learned some nuance, Jim Duggan. Slick managing Sheik and Volkov, always weird to me. There's no way the conservative values of Iran mesh with a fucking dancing pimp. Huge pop for the killer bees, even though they're wearing those dumbass headbands. And, and then they do this wide shot, and there's so much garbage in the ring uh, from the anthem. Sheik and Volkov jump before the bell. Hacksaw's marching around the ring like he's guarding Buckingham Palace. And... Volkov and Sheik do a do -si do early in the match, and it immediately calls my judgment into question when I said just two minutes ago that no one was exposing the business. Beings are tagging, quick, quicking out. Is, I, I'm wondering, too, if this is the match that made the Iron Sheik want to sodomize B. Brian Blair. And poor Sheik, man. He's just struggling to take a hip cost. Gorilla is, like, just, you know, verging, waiting for, like, Jim Brunzel to throw his dropkick. The ring is also still littered with garbage and Russian pride. 
And <laughs> Sheik, in a funny bit, tries to quiet the crowd. I love when heels try to make the like the, the, the noise is bothering them. That might be my favorite heel spot. <laughs> it's like, please, please, you motherfucker, please stop chanting USA. Fuck you, Silverdome. Also, Sheik's mustard yellow boots are hurting my eyes. Volkov misses, uh, like, the biggest clothesline I've ever seen. Like, the windup is... If he had connected with that clothesline, he would have taken Brian Blair's head right off his shoulders. Great gut wrench, though, from Sheik, which gets a two. And then Gorilla's like, he's the master of the suplex. Sheik then hits a jackhammer, which is way ahead of his time. Um, It's like, Sheik is wrestling with, like, 21st century values, but his personal values are 5th century. Bees get fucked on a tag the ref didn't see, which is a staple of every tag match from 85 to 91. Duggan is chasing Slick, but it's never faster than a march, so Slick is able to evade him. I don't know. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, he just never lets go of that 2 by 4 ever. Like, he marches in. There's no, never any other speed. He never runs. Like, you know, if he was saving someone from a burning building, he'd march in there with his 2 by 4 on his shoulders. Uh, Sheik then gets Brunzel in the camel clutch. The camel clutch! And uh, Duggan hits him with the board for the DQ. What's fucking Duggan's problem? And I'll be honest, I wish the Killer Bees would have just kicked the living shit out of Duggan here. Like, there's no reason for him to be out there besides xenophobia, right? Like, let the dude sing his anthem. And then there's zero injustice, but Duggan has to get involved for the good old US of A. You know, it's not, you know, it's not like the USA goes around the world getting involved in everyone else's business. No, they keep to themselves like gentlemen. All right. That was the whole reason they left England. Leave us alone. We're going to leave everybody alone. Shame on Jim Duggan. All right. Shame on Jim Duggan for being everything the USA doesn't stand for. Anyway, the match was fine. It was standard tag. Decent work. Two and a half stars. All right. Let's deal with the top five matches of the year. No honorable mentions uh, because the number five match clocks in at three and three quarter stars. But I can see this one being bumped up to four if you like it. Uh, that's Randy from the Survivor Series. Randy Savage, Ricky Steamboat, Jake Roberts, Brutus Beefcake, and Hacksaw Jim Duggan versus the Honky Tonk Man, Ron Bass, Danny Davis, Harley Race, and Hercules. And it, it, you look at this roster. And imagine, this is the worst men's match at the Survivor Series. It's three and three quarter stars. It's such a great revenge match. It's all the guys honky pissed off and they're all out for blood. And what it does do is set the stage for all Survivor Series matches to come. Fast tags, nonstop action, feuds woven into the story perfectly. Like there's no way King Harley Race give a fuck about the goddamn honky tonk man. But he's there to fight Jim Duggan, and by God, they're going to fight. In fact, they would keep fighting throughout the month of December all the way through an award show. They fought so well, I fell in love with the song Hit Me With Your Best Shot as a consequence. But this match shows that it's actually hard to fuck up this formula. You get talented guys in there, like all these guys are. And really, it could have been like Honky and the Knights, and it still would have been great because the heat is off the charts for everyone. Number four, best match. Also from the Survivor Series. That was a really good... Really good show. Uh, Hulk Hogan, Bam Bam Bigelow, Paul Orndorff, Ken Patera, and Don Morocco versus Andre the Giant, the one-man gang, King Kong Bundy, Butch Reed, and Ravishing Rick Rude. I think this is just a surprising... It's great that it's surprising that it's the main event. Hogan's team is so weird. Like, it's like team second and third chance. And, like, I love the way the match goes, that Hogan goes out, Bundy's left alone against Bundy Gang and Giant, then he eliminates Bundy and Gang, only to succumb to Andre. It's a great star-making performance. Uh, it's too bad that piece of shit Shawn Michaels fucks him. 
But I love seeing Andre stand tall, the great booking, and the match is really great action start to finish. Even a guy like Ken Patera is okay in it. Number three, also from the Survivor Series. Strike Force, the British Bulldogs, the fabulous Rougeau brothers, the Killer Bees, the Young Stallions versus the Heart Foundation, Demolition, the new Dream Team, the Bolsheviks, and the Islanders. Four and a half stars. Oh, I'm going to say it now. This one is light years better. I know the other one is remembered, but this one's light years better than the 1988-10 team match. It moves. It just moves. Go back and watch this and see how it moves. And it's anchored by the Islanders and the Young Stallions. Non-stop action start to finish. And a testament to how strong the tag division was in 1987. Number two, best match of the year. Come on, you know there's only two left. And if you know me, you know it's number two. And that's the Macho Man Randy Savage versus Ricky the Dragon Steamboat from WrestleMania 3 Intercontinental Championship. Five stars. This is such a classic. It's long maintained as one of the finest matches in company history. It, it's based on a crazy blood feud, and these two go out and almost steal the show at WrestleMania 3. And it's crazy how fast this match is. There's so many near falls. And I could see how, like, comparing it to everything that's come since, you might devalue this a bit. And I, I, don't, I don't think that's a bad opinion. I think it's fine. But for me, this is an easy five stars for the emotion, the incredible crowd reaction, and these guys put on a masterpiece, and I don't care that they rehearsed it. It worked. It worked, and it was good. And to me, it's it's a crazy influential match that will probably almost never be replicated. So kudos to Savage. Kudos to Steamboat. They killed it. All right, you know what time it is. The best match of 1987. And in my book, the fourth best WWF match of all time from WrestleMania three, Hulk Hogan defending the WWF Championship against Andre the Giant WWF title. Five stars. You know I'm watching this one. I, I got to go over it because I have when I was when I when I knew this was going to come up. I'm like, okay, well I got to at least make the case. So here's the case. I threw it on and watched it. Number one, Euchre's the announcer, which is cool. Andre comes down to mega heat, right? And I want you to understand that they're in a dome. So, you know, sound doesn't carry as well. So it's loud. So it must be crazy loud in there. And I love too, as Andre comes down to the cart, he's waving to the crowd, even though they hurl garbage at him. He's smiling, confident. And Gorilla and Jesse get into this weird argument about is Andre brainwashed or not? And then Gorilla has the balls to say, he never even wanted a title match. Who doesn't want a title match? And then Gorilla makes fun of Bobby the Brain's white waiter jacket. And I love that Jesse goes through all the measurements, like the wrist, the, the waist, the bicep. Hulk Hogan, according to uh, Bob Euchre, is out. Crowd is going batshit crazy already. You could tell how loud it is when they cut to the camera right next to him, walking, and the camera's shaking. Uh, Jesse's running down the tail of the tape, adding legitimacy. And I love that he's like Hogan with an incredible 24 inches. Like, even though he hates him, he's got to put over his arms. That was the... That's the credibility of Jesse the Body Ventura is that like Bobby Heenan hated everyone and I love Bobby Heenan. I don't get me wrong. I think he's the second best color commentator of all time. Uh, commentator of color of all time. Um, but look, Jesse added a legitimacy and a credibility because even when he hated you, he would give you some form of props. Crowd is fucking rabbit off the start of this. Hogan's doing a shtick. Andre's just waiting in the center of the ring. And then Hogan turns to him and slowly rips the shirt. While he's staring him in the eyes. Just a little nuance, a little different. 
Jesse then says this is the biggest match in pro wrestling history. And like maybe for the first time ever, it's not hyperbole. Incredible walk to the center of the ring for the stare down. It's such a magic moment. Andre has not moved. It's such great character work. Hogan's trash talking. Andre's saying nothing. And then Hogan starts punching him. And the place explodes. Explodes. Hogan goes for the slam. Andre falls on him. And we get a three count. At least Bobby, Andre, and Jesse think so. And the crowd bought it. There was like a... <gasps> I don't know if this was a Morella mistake. But fuck it adds to the match because it tells the story. Now, Hogan's hurt because his hubris has cost him. He thought he could slam this guy right away. He was overconfident. And now Andre's on top. Now Andre gets up and starts kicking him and clubbing the back. And this is the beauty with Andre the Giant is that he doesn't have to do 15 kicks, right? It's, and I love Stone Cold, but it's not Stone Cold kicking a mud hole. One Andre kick is enough. One club to the back is enough. Every blow is devastating. And Hogan is great at selling it. And after he knocks him down, he stands back and is like, up, up. He just wants him to get up. He's toying with him. He's toying with this man because Andre is so sure he can beat him. In his mind, he's already beaten him. Hogan is hurt and is in major trouble right away. And Jesse's selling the whole psychology of the match. He's like, the champion might have psyched himself out. So that's, and that's the story, right? Is that Hogan got too confident, went for the slam, and it's cost him. The crowd, too is screaming at every blow that Andre gives Hogan. Big body slam from Hogan to Andre. Up, up again. People are throwing garbage in the ring. They're so upset. Another huge slam, and he's killing Hogan. He's just killing him. At one point, he stands on his stomach, and the whole crowd goes, <gasps> like it's, you, know, you know what you're doing is working when the crowd is livid and scared for Hogan. And the work is all on the back from Andre. Another little touch. You want to say Andre doesn't have psychology? It's wrong. He's kicking him in the back. He's clubbing him in the back. And the back is hurt from the missed body slam. Whipping him on the ring. Andre's really working a smart match. Then Andre gets him in the corner. Shoulder blocks. The crowd is pissed. Upset. Gives him that ass shot. And the crowd is scared. Bobby goes, headbutt him! And Andre, head, the first headbutt, looks like it crunches Hogan. It's so good looking. You are so good looking, headbutt. But then Andre misses one, hits headbutt to the corner, and Hogan's alive. He starts with the punches, but can't knock him down. And the whole stadium is like, like the catharsis is happening. He's, he's starting to win over. He's starting to fight back against the giant. And Hogan right now, too, is doing a great job because it looks like he's fighting for his life. He gets the 10 smashes at the head of Andre into the turnbuckle. And then Hogan goes for a running clothesline and gets decimated with a massive big boot. Huge heat for that. Huge, and Hogan's in trouble. Andre scoops him up, levels him with a massive chop. Like It looks like Andre's whole forearm hits him, and his forearm's like the size of my leg, so that's a lot of surface area. Um, and like So now Andre goes for a bear hug, and normally I'm going to hate this spot, but the psychology of this match so far is all about the back. And the whole time Hogan's in it, the crowd is screaming for him to get out. Great facials from Hogan, too, as he struggles. And I like at first Hogan tries to get his arm in, inside the bear hug, like an actual logical counter to this, but he just can't do it. Hogan's reaching for the crowd. They're all going crazy trying to, to give him something. And Gorilla justifies this by like saying like, oh, they're going to give him a little extra. Hogan looks like he's out. Hogan's arm dropped twice. Third time strength, crowd's losing their mind. Just losing their mind. He's punching, everyone's screaming and going nuts. He basically punches until Andre lets go and it's like 25 punches. 
He runs at Andre, but bounces off. And Andre's stunned. Andre's starting to sell like he's like a bit groggy. But Hogan just can't hurt him. Now Hogan runs again into another big chop. Andre kicks him out of the ring. Hogan tumbles to the floor. Andre's crippling him with chops on the floor. And I love... Hogan has short flurries. Like he starts getting an, an, like a, an upper hand. Andre hits him once. It's done. That's the story again. He's fighting this giant. It's great. Uh, and then Hogan like is trying to like, like I, I, he's fighting Andre on the outside. Andre goes to headbutt Hogan. He hits his head in the post. Then Hogan starts tearing up the mats. Hogan's going to pile drive Andre on the wood. That's attempted murder, my friend. And then Andre backdrops him and Hogan's hurt again, which is great. Jesse is all over the sportsmanship of Hogan trying to kill Andre. Now, Andre rolls him into the ring, throws him into the ropes. Andre goes for a boot, but Hogan kind of ducks and moves and fucking levels Andre with a running clothesline. And Andre stumbles and finally falls to the ground. He hadn't fallen the entire match. And I love that the clothesline hurts Hogan also because he like jumps into him. It's like he needed that extra boost to get this guy down because he learned from all his other moves that didn't work in the match. Andre is rocked and Hulk is hulking up. He's shaking and the roof is blowing off the place. Just blowing off. You get one I think is the best calls of all time. It's so simple. It's just Gorilla going, look at this. Look at this. Hogan scoops him up. Slams him. It's even fucking louder. Leg drop. One, two, three. The place loses its mind. And even Jesse's like, I never thought it could be done. But the crowd also reacts as though they didn't think it could be done. Hogan wins. Look, this match is a fucking masterpiece. It's perfect. This has always been my my position on this match. I don't need moonsaults. This is a perfect match. Because if the goal of a wrestling match is to engage the crowd then how could they have possibly done any better? The crowd screamed and yelled at all the right places for the entirety of the match. Everyone was invested in every move that these two made. All of Andre's offense was believable and looked like he was killing Hogan. I get it. He's broken down. But he used what he was good at to give maximum effect for everything. Right? It doesn't matter that he's broken down. He still looked believable trying to beat Hulk Hogan. Right? And I was totally on board. Right? It looked like he was killing him. Hogan fighting from underneath the whole match, inspired, right? He just couldn't get a foothold until he hit that one big shot. All building to like the perfect crescendo of Hogan slamming the big guy. It pays off the failed slam earlier. It creates what I think is still probably the most iconic moment in wrestling history. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this. Hogan slamming Andre, I believe, is what people leaving the building were talking about. Despite the revisionist history involved. It's a beautiful, beautiful match. It's everything a big main event should be. It was the biggest match of all time, and it delivered. It made Hogan a bigger star and gave us these incredible memories that we hold to this day. Five stars. Let's hear from my friend Rocco Martone. 1987, the greatest year in WWF history. See? This is why we're friends. <laughs> the greatest feud, the biggest match, the best mania, my favorite things in wrestling history. At 10 years old, having watched wrestling obsessively since I was at least five, Mania 3 seemed like the biggest culmination of the entire history of wrestling. I don't know if I thought there was going to be anything after. Maybe this is it. All the great feuds and the greatest story and match of all time would occur. And then tomorrow, nothing. What else could there be? It seemed that important and consumed me as a child. Hogan and Andre is the greatest feud in pro wrestling history. Two gods colliding for control of the world. Better yet, 
it's deeply personal, even biblical. There's a bloody crucifix for fuck's sake. How much more symbolism can you get? For someone to rate this match short of five stars is insane to me. Yeah. Uh, these are gods fighting in front of you for stakes higher than the Roman Colosseum. <laughs> Criticize the way Andre moves? How do you think a giant would move? He is literally fighting the gravitational pull of the earth, <laughs> fighting gravity to raise his gargantuan arm just to bring it down upon Hogan. I've never really paid much attention to the negative reviews that social troglodytes like Meltzer and Keith assigned to this match. The negative reviews just motivated me to find smarter, more relevant wrestling commentators like the place to be. Ah, oh, Rocco, you're the man. The attempted homicide... <laughs> it's funny how we picked out all the same things. The attempted homicide pile drive on the floor destroyed my brain as a young man. What would have happened if he completed that? I fear that the earth would have split wide open and Cthulhu would have crawled out of his centuries of slumber to wreak havoc on the world for the sins perpetrated against his fellow behemoth, Andre. Andre was my first favorite wrestler. And I was feverishly behind him during this match and was thoroughly crushed by his defeat. Oh, can you tell how much I love this match? I was never a face heel type of wrestling fan. I just, I always just like a guy and then followed him through any turn he took. I was like that too. I was the same with sports. I discovered and loved Pat Lafontaine. <laughs> fa la 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 Lafontaine. That's a Rick Jennerette call from the Buffalo Sabres. Anyway, back to Rocco. I discovered and loved Pat Lafontaine while he was a New York Islander, which was geographically close enough to New Jersey to be a hometown team. And then followed him throughout his career, which unfortunately made me watch more Rangers game than I care to admit. I feel like it probably also made you watch Buffalo Sabres games, which are never great, uh, sadly. Aaron, who is your first favorite wrestler? Do you remember your first time seeing Andre? Uh, yeah, okay, so my first favorite wrestler, my very first favorite was Hogan, for sure. But I was seven, you know, like... And then right after that, it was Savage. And then it was always Savage. Now, I had some others along the way. I always, so I loved Savage. I always loved Mr. Perfect. Um, in the early 91, I liked Bret Hart, but I stopped liking him after. and still haven't gone back. No. Um, and I was, I always liked Perfect. I always liked Owen Hart. Uh, those were the guys. Those were my big guys, especially Perfect. I thought Perfect was so cool, like even though he was a heel. And I loved Flair in 92. So him and Savage fighting was like really difficult for me. Um, those are my favorites. It started with Hogan, but quickly devolved into flair. Um, because, no, excuse me to savage. I remember my dad, he was going to order me a wrestling watch and he was like, which one do you want? And it was an easy choice. I said, savage. And this was like really early in my fandom. So I just always liked him. My first time seeing Andre. Yeah. I saw him at the Montreal forum. I mean, my first time seeing him was in that 1987, um, Sirenet's main event when he comes in and chokes Hogan from behind in the sports jacket so I was terrified of him like just so scared of him um, like he was just he always made me uneasy and then I saw him live and he's fucking huge live I think I only saw him once live he didn't come that often even though like it's a French town where I live and he probably he always got cheered no matter what but that was my first when he killed Hogan with those headbutts and I was so terrified of the man Back to Rocco. In a bit of personal info, when I first realized how much mutual admiration you had for this match, I realized how symbiotic our loves of wrestling were. I can't wait to hear you talk about this match. Would love to hear a pod blast of you narrating the match <laughs> with your incredible style and with the deserved Shakespearean pageantry. I hope I kind of gave you that. I hadn't read this until I did it. So again, look at that symbiosis there, right? Uh, but thanks, Rocco. Your questions have always been insightful and always have taken me to different places in the show, which I really, really appreciate. One more thing out of Rocco. 
Uh, he wants to thank me for the show. He goes, I started listening in the midst of a global pandemic and looked forward to it every day, wondering what great content the new North-South would have for me. The year that was stood out as a labor of love uh, that I literally left the first comment I'd ever left on a PTB podcast. Uh, thank you so much for letting me play a small part in such an incredible piece of wrestling art and history. Thanks for exposing me to wrestling um, that I had slept on, like Sid <laughs> and the other cool guys who leave comments for making me feel like a part of something really cool. Uh, through the highs of getting married and buying a house and the lows of the pandemic and the deaths of friends, family, and my sweet cat, Grishy, um, I spent the last year and a half waking up every other Monday morning, drinking a cup of coffee, jumping on my mountain bike, and listening to the year that was and having the best start to the week possible. Your ability to connect and convey emotion through your words is unbelievable. You're an incredible dude. Thanks for all the kind words. Pod on and off. Your friend, Rocco. Thanks, Rocco. Thank you. Okay. Um, characters is the next uh, category. Uh, I have it third out of 36. Uh, before I hit the characters, though, I want to hit uh, Jared Robert. Jared Robert. I never, you know, whenever in Quebec, Robert is a last, Robert is how you say Robert, Rabaya, you would say, but it's always a last name here. There's a few, there's a few first names, but Rabaya ends up being a last name. Anyway, Jared Robert or Jared Rabar in, in French would be Jared Rabar, but uh, you've written in a lot, so I really appreciate it. He says, 1987 to 1997 is basically the parameters of my WWE fandom. This is the material I still watch and collect today. There are good years and not so good years during the stretch, but even the good years like 87 and 97 have some bad stuff sprinkled through and the rough years like 93 and 95 has some excellent stuff beneath the surface. That's true. Although this is all in retrospect, and I wasn't watching at the time, I will say that January 17th, 1987, Superstars of Wrestling pretty much marks when I started to get into the WWF product. Prior to that, I wasn't really into the wrestling they were putting on outside of matches involving the Hart Foundation and the British Bulldogs. I preferred NWA, Jim Crockett Promotions, over WWF during the 1985-86 period. Yeah, see, we never got it, and I, I think it might be an age thing. Like At that time, I was like six and seven, so I feel like the colors of the WWF would have probably brought me in more. 1980, back to our Jared. 1987 was an awesome year. The build towards WrestleMania 3 from January to March of Superstars of Wrestling, Wrestling Challenge, and Primetime Wrestling was appointment television. While I enjoy and like WrestleMania 3, I find the card as a whole a tad overrated. Uh, Savage and Steamboat is excellent, but I don't feel it's the perfect five-star classic that many people preach that it is. And while I'm in the minority for sure, I actually enjoy the inaugural Survivor Series pay-per-view way more than WrestleMania that year. Uh, I'm on board with that. I, I enjoy Survivor Series more. I think I, I, if I had the choice to watch one or the other right now, I would throw on Survivor Series. Um, so I'm on board with you there, Jared. Uh, back to Jared. Watching 87 back, it's actually hard to believe that in spite of the product being so hot, WWF TV from April to August is quite bland. This is particularly evident on primetime wrestling, where matches like Outback Jack versus Frenchie Martin and Jim Powers and Paul Roma versus The Shadows were run week after week. It also didn't help that after Hogan defeated Andre, any challenger that followed the Giant would be a step down, no matter how good they were. Superstars and Challenge were more watchable, but they really had nothing to build towards, save for house shows. Taking this into account, I really wish that SummerSlam had produced that year. Yeah, that would have been cool. Uh, things heated up in the fall, thanks to a couple of Saturday, good Saturday Night's main events, and a pay-per-view that showcased the Honky Tonk Man, uh, Macho Man feud. And Andre returning to feud with Hogan. Bringing in the Million Dollar Man into the Hogan-Andre feud added a brilliant new wrinkle to the product as well. Yeah, I agree, Jared. Uh, Saturday Night's main event is like the lifeblood of this, and it's not part of this project, but it's hard not to feel its influence. All right, let's delve into the characters. So when I, I, when I was seven, I thought Adrian Adonis's thing was just that he was fat, and for some reason he liked the color pink. Never, 
Never did it occur to me that this man was some sort of a filthy, disgusting biker a few years earlier. Ugh, bikers, gross. Join the Disciples of Apocalypse, all right? I always assumed that he was also bruised constantly. I didn't know. I guess I didn't know his makeup. I imagine someone beat the shit out of, out of his face. Like, I saw my mother in the shower once when I was a kid, and her legs were all bruised. And that's what I imagine happened to Adrian Adonis's face. And look, whatever happened to my mother's legs was happening to his face. And no, my father was not beating her. Look, the worst I ever saw him do was throw like a cabinet of tiny sewing things across a room in a rage. If you were Greg the Hammer Valentine, you have to imagine that based on your pedigree and spectacular chin, you would be the bell of the ball when it comes to willing tag team partners. But no, no, no one gives a fuck about his flowing hair or his hammer jammer. He dumps Brutus Beefcake, fine, right? Fine, okay? Imagine though that you're a successful wrestler and your partner, despite having spent time as the world tag team champions, goes off and wants to become a barber. Look, you should, you should kick his ass to the curb. But then you replace him with Dino fucking Bravo? It's like if Brad Pitt dumped Jennifer Aniston and started banging John Candy. Plus, they declared themselves the new dream team, and we've dealt with this before. It doomed them from the start. And as I look back, Dino Bravo from 1997, 1987, he's not the USA is not okay guy yet. Uh, to me, he always looked like a walking cigarette. It's that hair. It's not blonde. It's like yellow. It's like his parents live with him and he, they smoke in his house and with zero regard to his health. I always thought this of him. I always thought he was a human cigarette. And who knew how incredibly right this would end up being? The contrast is the Rougeos, nice French guys, nice French guys who wear Speedos to the ring. And I know lots of nice French guys. They don't flip-flop around the ring like Jacques and Pierre, but fuck to a T, do they wear Speedos to the beach when they swim. Ken Patera is out of jail. Uh, did not work on his legs while he was in the can. A lot of upper body work. Clearly skipped leg day. I will say, though, in, in jail, that perm must have gotten him mega laid, though. Like, if you squint, like, if you're looking at him and you squint, you, you could probably imagine that's a 50-year-old woman going down on you. Bam Bam Bigelow was a man on fire. Coolest possible person to a kid. And he does cartwheels. This was also the height of animals in the WWF. And I feel like every second guy is bringing his goddamn pet to the ring. And my father, ever the skeptic, always told me the animals were fake. He didn't believe in anything, though, especially after the divorce, you know? Like, the British Bulldogs had Matilda. They would cart that mutt to the ring despite it being scared to death. Like, what's impressive about that, and number one, Bulldogs aren't cheap. So, like, they had to buy a Bulldog to bring down. But also, there's no way that dog wasn't eaten at least once by Damien or Kamala. Look, the Bulldogs were just badasses as tag team wrestlers, so we forgave the dog. Uh, Coco Beware would come out and flap his arms like a bird. Um, he would also declare himself to be the bird man. He would dance and flap and throw drop kicks and occasionally work at a construction site. He brought Frankie down to the ring, a blue macaw that will later be trash-talked by Jimmy Hart as he's beaten by a police officer. Look, there is no way, there is no way that bird survived Damien or the one-man gang. No way. And I keep dancing around Damien, but he is the tool of one Jake the Snake Roberts, a dark, brooding man who would try to break your neck, and if that didn't work, would release a python on you. Night after night, attempted murder, and, you know, people were shocked later when this dude tried to murder Randy Savage with a cobra, right? And in a year where all the wrestlers sang on an album, there was no way I could picture poor Jake singing anything. If that man starts singing, murder starts happening.
I mean, Cheryl Roberts, right? Like Cheryl Roberts probably heard him one night talking about the end of the beginnings to one of their daughters and promptly started consulting divorce attorneys. King Kong Bundy hated midgets. Then the midgets had a great revolt, which culminated in the walking condominium, leaving the silver dome with many hurt shins. Butch Reed was the natural. I mean, I guess he couldn't be Haxla anymore since the moniker was already in use by Bigot Duggan. But I think many would point to his hair as being unnatural. I, however, think there's nothing natural about the grunting the man does in his matches. It's like he and Iron Mike Sharp are throwing out competing mating calls until Donna Cristinello comes in and bangs one of them. Speaking of hypocrites, the junkyard dog has no regard for stipulations. You know, I expect when Grab Them Cakes comes on, I am treated to the fighting and dancing of a rigorous man from the South. But he lost the respect of a nation when he refused to bow to Harley Race. That man is your king. The fabulous Mula attempted to be cheered in a ring while she was surrounded with all the women she spent the better part of the year pimping. Nah, it ain't easy after all. Nor is getting the crowd to cheer for this decrepit old hag. Billy Jack Haynes from Portland. He wore a dumbass hat. All these contributed to me being happy that he was destroyed at WrestleMania by Hercules, who was a Greek god. Now, when I thought of Greek god, I never, ever imagined a middle-aged man, but he still looked incredibly strong and made me fear for any face that got caught in the backbreaker. Also, we talked about animals, but there's two bees running around. And how, what, why is it that the bee in Brian Blair doesn't stand for bee? Why not just put bee, B-E-E, Brian Blair? I have no appreciation for anyone who uses a single initial for a first name. And I'm glad the Sheik took him to Brown Town while Brunzel cried in the corner. Harley Race was the king of the WWF. I always thought that was such a juxtaposition. Because on one hand, I mean, I guess, I mean, I'm looking at it in terms of maybe being a kid and even now, but it's like, I guess on one hand, he's old enough to be the king. But on the other hand, he has prison tattoos, which I thought were not really befitting of a king. Now, I have no doubt that Harley Race would be the king of any prison that he inhabited. It would be a real Rorschach situation where, like, he isn't locked in them with them, but they are locked in here with him. Don Morocco was hanging on to his beach bum character in the start of the year, but then, after some inspiration from a failed kung fu teacher, he transformed into the original, albeit tie-dyed version, of The Rock. And as a kid, I loved The Rock Don Morocco. I couldn't understand he wasn't the champion of something. Also, Superstar Billy Graham is back. Am I supposed to be excited about him? The man looked like he could hardly move. And he was squished by some dude all in black leotards. If you are a betting man or woman, too, I cannot imagine you would have put good money on the street, on like a street tough from Chicago becoming a dancing fool by the end of 1988. One Man Gang was the first main event I ever saw live. He was fighting Hulk Hogan. He was super intimidating. And the fact that they later decided to turn him into something mocking Dusty Rhodes is, is quite spectacular. And, of course, there was the Doctor of Style, Slick. Now, I know they never said it, but he was a pimp, right? <laughs> I love everything about this character. Uh, the dancing, the crazy extended vowel sounds. Even the way he walked around with a fucking lanky-ass body, it all worked for me. Uh, Bob Orton was busy raising a snake, so no wonder he disappears after WrestleMania. Okay, how, how on earth did Paul Orndorff get back into Hulk Hogan's good graces by the end of the year? I mean, Jesus Christ, at the start of the year, he stole the man's music, he tried to steal his title in a cage, and he probably cuckolded him as well. Hulk Hogan looks at Paul Orndorff like some current fans look at WWE. 
Like, Orndorff could kill his dog in front of him, and Hogan would be like, well, you know, I still hate AEW. I guess the entire concept of the Hart Foundation was built on the fact that they wore pink and Jim Neidhart was potentially crazy. But whatever, it worked because they were absolutely hated for the majority of the year until people started seeing how good Bret Hart was. No way to keep a dude like that heel unless he starts calling your city a literal asshole. I mean, what more can I say about the genius of the dangerous Danny Davis character? I don't think there has ever been a greater heat magnet than Dennis. Dennis Davis. I don't know if it was the fact that he was a corrupt ref or if he had the most punchable face this side of John Krasinski, but the crowds were molten for this dude. And he played it up super well because he looked like a weakling. He wrestled like a weakling. He was a weakling. He'd strut around in those striped tights and that tight white shirt. Ugh, we'd lose our minds. Rick Martel was a happy Frenchman just looking to be with a foreign partner. When the United States didn't work out for him with Tom Zank, he flew south of the border to hook up with Tito Santana. And who knew that that relationship would flourish into something that would be revisited in every single Royal Rumble or Pizza Hut that they would share. Santana was a great wronged man until he found Martel. They became buddies. I've never seen Tito so happy. The breakup was so hard on him that he would later just start fighting bulls in order to fill that model-shaped hole in his heart. Ricky Steamboat was the hottest babyface on the planet to start the year. He was nearly crippled by Randy Savage and his revenge story was near perfection. But then... He had to be a fucking selfish prick and want to help raise his son? What a douchebag. Look, I totally get why Vince needed to put the title on the biggest loser of the company instead. Speaking of which, speaking of that loser, I love the Honky Tonk Man. I mean, I hated him in 1987. Uh, but he was one of the biggest pricks in the world then. Maybe still is. He couldn't win a match. He couldn't even really defend himself without resorting to a guitar or heart foundation. And did I mention that he shoved Elizabeth? This guy is the quintessential weak champion who anyone in the promotion could beat in a fair fight, which makes it all the more effective when someone finally does a year later. You almost forget that the original character is an Elvis impersonator, and you almost also forget that he was supposed to be a face until the WWF did a poll, and it turns out everybody hates the dude. Everyone except Jimmy Yang, Jorge Estrada, and Sonny Siaki. Roddy Piper was as hot as face as any going into WrestleMania 3, and I guess you can only keep someone as talented as him heel for so long. As a kid, I thought he hates flowers. As an adult, it really feels like he has a major problem with homosexuals. First Adonis, then nine years later Goldust? What? If this guy has these views, what the hell is he trying to do break into Hollywood? Let me hear from J. Arsenio D'Amato. What if Paper doesn't retire in 87? Book his post-mania feuds, please. Well, I think there's a difference between what they would do and what I think they should do. Here's what I think they would do. If he stays there. And I don't like it. I think logically he takes Savage's place. Which makes me sad. and Because I wouldn't trade that Savage run for anything. I think he goes after honking the IC title. And he probably beats him a lot sooner. I think the company's worse off for having it happen. Now for me. Why not after Adonis. A blood feud with Butch Reed. Because I don't want to really mess with any of the other major feuds. And Reed's not really doing anything else. This by consequence would align him against Slick. So he'd also be fighting the one man gang. And maybe he has to get a partner to fight Shikin Volkov or just Volkov or the Bolsheviks when they show up. So there's just a lot that you could do with Piper there. I would also like to insert him into a minor storyline with Hulk Hogan as being the voice of reason to Hogan not accept, to not accept Mr. Wonderful as his friend. Like, this guy kept turning on you, Hogan. Hi, this guy kept turning on you. Um, also, get him on the Survivor Series team to watch Hogan's back from Mr. Wonderful. 
Like he joins that team just to protect Hogan from Mr. Wonderful. Get fucking Ken Patera out of there. Then obviously he turns on Hogan. That's the swerve. Uh, and the match that Mr. Wonderful doesn't. And and if you want, you could run him in Orndorff, Saturday Night event. And you could probably run Hogan Piper one-on-one at WrestleMania 4 because you don't need Hogan in the tournament. It could be something completely different. Or if you want to go to the other route, Reed and then tie Piper up with DiBiase. That could work too, but he'd never put over Ted DiBiase. Thanks, Je- thanks, John. You're the man. Randy Savage uh, began his uh, turn into one of the all-time greats in 1987. Starts with a great blood feud with Steamboat where he's the bastard. Then he's trying to recapture the Intercontinental. Gets help from an unlikely source, Hulk Hogan. It's almost hard to see face Savage fighting for the secondary title because he's just so over. He was still his usual paranoid, angry self. He'd fly into a rage if anyone even leered at Elizabeth. Plus, he and Hogan have the strangest handshake ever. I feel like DDP would be like, do that handshake using dynamic resistance. Hulk Hogan was an invincible American icon because after he beats Andre the Giant, who could even come close to beating him? I have long maintained that Randy Savage was my favorite wrestler as a kid, but it's easy to understate how important Hogan's dynamism is to bringing a young kid into watching wrestling because the dude's all decked out in bright colors. He just looks interesting, right? Because he's big. Like on one hand, he kind of looks like a dad with a bald spot and we all want it to be like our dads as kids, right? But then he's cool because he's got the long hair and the mustache. He's also huge and like his muscles look way cooler than when I flex my muscles in the mirror. Tearing the shirt, too, is one of those things that just made him an icon. I can't tell you how many shirts I ripped as a kid fighting my giant stuffed bunny. And it was hard to rip a shirt. You know, he had to be mega strong to do that. And then you see the man live. And he has this incredible ability to whip you into a frenzy. Uh, you know, you, 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 you'd never seen him get so beat down. You know, you, you see him get beat up so bad that you're like, oh, my God, this is the night. This is the night. One man gang is going to kill him. Then he starts to shake the punches, the ear cupping. It brought everybody to their feet. It, it's like he hypnotizes the audience into losing their minds each time he's out there. There's really nothing like Hulk Hogan, and there hasn't been since, sadly. And I want to end the character section on um, Andre the Giant because there has never been a wrestler that made me as uncomfortable as Andre. I started watching in 1987, and I had no concept of face Andre as a kid. This is just a big motherfucker who was clearly out to murder Hulk Hogan, and I talked about how he did it on Saturday Night's Main Event, he grabbed him, he choked him from behind wearing the sports jacket, uh, headbutts him. I thought Hogan was going to die. It took an entire locker room and a two-by-four to get him off. His aura was incredible. He felt indestructible. And I and many in the audience were scared of the man. That's why Mania 3 was so special. Both guys were unbeatable. And even in defeat, Andre still looked like a killer. It's an aura they've tried to replicate many times, but have never been able to recapture again. Justin Pratt, my man Justin Pratt, as far as 87 goes, I was one year old, and that's that. Great fucking work on this pod, brother, and what you've done is remarkable. We're lucky to have listened. You're lucky to listen to JT, uh, to JP and Tim Slomka also when it comes back. Uh, New Gen on a Mission, a great show, North-South Connection Podcast Network. All right, WrestleMania is the next category. And uh, way back in 2020, JT and I ranked all the WrestleManias on No Holds Barred. And this is one we kept coming back to, and it's easy to see why. We ranked it third out of 36, right? And it's like, how can a show, we kept saying, how can a show that has two five-star matches be anywhere outside of the top? There's no bad matches and a disrespectful junkyard dog and an attempted murder of the little, and you have an easy all-timer. And no, we didn't just put it third because it's WrestleMania three. 
The opener's fine. Makeshift Can-Am connection square off against the ad hoc team of Don Morocco and Bob Orton. Clearly, uh, Morocco was not Bob's type, as he cared significantly less for him than he did for Roddy Piper. I mean, this whole match is about relationships, right? Martel was promptly spurned into the arms of a willing Mexican. I like the match, though. It's a fun, hot opener. Zink and Martel are capable babyfaces. Morocco and Orton are competent heels. Easy three stars. Then, we have one of the weirdest blow-offs in company history. So, Hercules... Hercules hates Oregon, Right? I'm not sure why, but he does. So he starts fucking with this dude in a top hat. He beats him up, most instances, even eliminates him from a battle royal. Now, conventional thinking would think that Billy Jack Hayes gets the win here. But no, double count out, fine. But then we get the spectacular bludgeoning of Hayes with the chain until he's left a bloody Portland mess. I like Hercules. I always thought Haynes looked like the human version of St. Patrick's Day, so I was happy to see his fat head get mangled. If King Kong Bundy hated midgets so much, he would never. He should have never agreed to team with two of them against Hillbilly Jim. I, I can't think of a, a greater fall from grace in 365 days than Bundy main eventing in a cage with Hulk Hogan to teaming with Little Tokyo and Lord Liddy Littlebrook against a farmer. It's like if Hillary Clinton loses the 2016 election, then goes back to sucking clown cock. Anyway, the match is fine, whatever, but I love Bundy trying to murder the little people. Had the match ended with four splatter marks on the mat, I'd be hard-pressed to go less than five stars. Then you get the disrespectful junkyard dog, loses to the king and refuses to adhere to the bowing stipulation, which obviously set the precedent for the company to break every stipulation they ever imposed. Retirements, banishments, butlers, abeyances, firings. It can all be traced to this out-of-shape motherfucker not bowing for the king. The Dream Team then fights the Rougeos, and I think we all know by now I'm a sucker for French Canadians in tight speedos. This is also the backdrop of the creation of Brutus the Barber Beefcake as Dino Bravo takes his place alongside Greg Valentine. Fantastic retirement match of Rowdy Roddy Piper. He beats the living shit out of Adrian Adonis for five minutes before putting his ass to sleep. Now, thankfully, this happened before hate crime legislation was passed. Otherwise, we would have been deprived of They Live. It was also a hair match, so Brutus, despite all the previous emotional trauma suffered, gives Adonis a fine haircut. Heat magnet Danny Davis teams with the Hart Foundation to defeat Tito Santana and the British Bulldogs in a fun six-man match. Butch Reed kills Coco Beware dead and probably eats Frankie at the after party. The classic Steamboat Savage we talked about. The goddamn honky-tonk man beats Jake the Snake, despite having Alice Cooper in the corner. Worst match of the year between the Bees and the Foreigners, and then the main event, Hogan Andre, we talked about. Look, this thing has 12 matches and flies by. And even when the matches are short, they're still meaningful. I mean, Piper's retirement match is six and a half minutes long, and it's a great memory. In fact, no matches other than the IC and the world title matches cross the 10-minute mark. And that's fine. Nothing overstays its welcome. Could you make the show better? Yeah, maybe. But it's really hard to take matches off because everyone was involved in some sort of feud. I guess if you wanted to, you could have done Hart's Bulldogs straight up and have Santana murder Davis on his own. If you had to do that, you'd have to cancel Reed and Coco, but that's fine. Or you could have Duggan fight Sheik or Volkov or, or instead of using the bees as a proxy. Anyway, the show's great. I wouldn't want to change it. It's easy watch. Jesse and Gorilla are awesome on commentary. Bob Euchre's great. Don't change a thing, WrestleMania 3. I love you the way you are. Dave Hall. 
Wow, two amazing years to complete this journey. That should have been less time. That's my fault, Dave. All right, back to Dave. 1987 is a very special year for me, as it was a year I became a mega fan. I remember watching WrestleMania 3 with my father on the TV down here in Australia. WrestleMania 3 was the first ever event I had seen all the build for on TV. The angles, the attacks, the interviews. I was ready for this event. I remember being in awe of the classic Steamboat versus Savage match. In my mind, this is the measuring stick for all future mania, classic Mania matches. And to me personally, it is the greatest Mania match of all time. I remember being unsure if Hogan could beat Andre in the main event. To me, this is where my true fandom began. Right? I, don't, I, I, I wonder what brings people to the table now in terms of what ignites their fandom. Because to me, it just seems so obvious that these characters in this time are just a magnet for anyone who loves uh, physicality, fighting, theatricality, all of it. Thanks, Dave, and thanks for all your comments. All right, world title storyline, 8th out of 36. So this one's a bit hard to rank because there isn't much activity outside of the top of card, outside the Mania main event. But on the other hand, it's one of the greatest and most important feuds of all time, so you can't rank it low. So you can't rank it super high, you can't rank it super low. I think 8 is fair. It's all about Hogan and Andre. Three years to be a champion is a long time. That's a terrible Andre the Giant, but it's the best I can do. And then you get the exchanging of trophies, the Piper's Pit segments, uh, the one where Andre finally shows up with Bobby. Like, you knew shit was on, right? I love, too, that, like, in the build, he didn't have to beat him up or anything. All Andre had to do was rip his shirt and break the crucifix. That was meaningful enough. Hogan is devastated. The shot of him and Piper on their knees on the Piper's pit is on a magnet on my fridge and never has someone come in and asked if they were fucking. They know they knew what it was. It's the single greatest display of betrayal in the history of mankind. Jesus wishes Judas had the charisma of Andre the Giant for his turn. Then you get the battle royal in Sunrise Man Event where Andre dismissively tosses Hogan out and the fight at Mania is on. Now, in the aftermath, Hogan continues the feud with the Heenan family, which is great. I'm especially fond of the late series with Bundy for the title. But in the house shows, Hogan's fighting Kamala. Uh, he beats up Roman Reigns' dad on Saturday Night's main event. It's a real exciting time. And the title has almost never felt more important. It's definitely a year in which we could have had some major, more major shows. And this easily would have finished first. Mid-card storyline. Now, the mid-card's a different story. I think the Savage and Steamboat is probably the best feud in the history of the Intercontinental title. The hatred is amazing. And while I do think that the title ends up taking a bit of a backseat to the personal rivalry, it ultimately elevates the title and the duo because of the feud. Then the Hong Kong man gets the title and Savage is chasing him and the belt feels elevated to like main event status. You know, like even Zeus Hogan comes down and participates in the storylines. And it's such a testament to how strong the mid card is in the Survivor Series opener because you get all the guys that hate Honky and they're all credible. Savage, Steamboat, Brutus, Jake, and Hacksaw. Imagine that's your mid-card. It's a murderer's row of some of the most over guys in company history. And that's the thing, right? Everything else this year, it, there's no like bullshit meandering. Everything else that's not Hulk Hogan is part of the mid-card, and it's an important part of the show. How, do you, how else do you explain Billy Jack Haynes getting sympathy heat? I've been to Oregon. Everyone is so well-booked that we actually boo Hercules beating the shit out of him. We boo Dino Bravo turning on Brutus Beefcake. No one had ever given a shit about Beefcake, not even his immediate family. But here we are, cheering for the cutting and strutting. The mid-card in 87 is incredible. Never on the mid-card, Ryan Gray. Ryan Gray says, however, he's talking about 1987 being the best, his favorite year. And he continues saying, 
However, my gut tells me 1987 is first. Well, good. You follow your gut. Uh, just based on your love of Andre and Hulk and 1987 benefiting from less actually being more. Hey, I said that. Only having WrestleMania and a sneaky good Survivor Series as the only pay-per-view to go for. However, they are super important for the history of WWF, WWE. Aaron, thanks again for the year that was. Looking forward to your future. Well, you'll hear about it, Ryan, because, yeah, you know. Thanks, Ryan. You're the man. Tag Team Storyline, third out of 36. Oh, man. Man, this is part of this year's massive dishes of both bread and butter. They have all kinds of teams, and they aren't afraid to push them and give them wins. They also treat the tag team scene as an important part of the promotion, and as a consequence, the cards end up feeling fresh. A third of the matches at Mania are tag matches with a storyline. Nowadays, if there's a tag team match on a show, it's because it's for the championship. It's like today, tag matches can only be for titles. Otherwise, uh, we don't know. We can't do storylines for them. We have like infinite amount of TV time, but we can't think and develop storylines for other people, right? It's crazy. They would never be onto the stumble upon the genius of the Islanders dognapping Matilda to fuck with the Bulldogs from the sixth match down from the top of WrestleMania, right? They would never have a 10-team match and then have the complete underdogs win the match. That's outlandish. But more than that, these were actual teams, not just guys thrown together. I mean, I guess, except for Strike Force, but even that felt more like a team than like Rhino and Heath Slater, right? And think of the teams, right? Heart Foundation, British Bulldogs, Killer Bees, Volkov and Sheik. They were singles guys, but they'd been teaming for like two years. The Dream Team, the New Dream Team, the Cream Team, the Rougeau Brothers, the Young Stallions, the Islanders, and on the verge of superstardom, Demolition. That's 10 teams in, involved in the promotion. All of them decent to very good in ring and almost all over. And the Islanders are maybe my favorite to revisit. Imagine how good the division is when these guys can barely get a shot because the, the upper tag team stuff is so stacked. And I mentioned these teams. I didn't even mention Strike Force, the champions, right? Also, it's telling me... Um, it's telling that every heel team has a manager because they're an important piece of the puzzle. It's a boon to the year. As for the titles, uh, the Hearts fucked the Bulldogs, which is nothing new, as Diana was probably tied to that bed 90% of the day. But then the Hearts get embroiled in all the crooked ref stuff. They're credible champions before losing to the best babyface team on the roster. I mean, Christ, how could you boo Rick Martel and Tito Santana? And now... It feels like as good a time as any to talk about girls in cars. Holy crap, what a killer track. There are 10 songs on the Piledriver album, which is one of the quintessential albums of my childhood, and I will now rank them from worst to best. Number 10, Waking Up Alone by Hillbilly Jim and Gertrude. I don't know who Gertrude is, but the only Gertrude I know is Hamlet's mom. And if Hamlet's mom is now banging Hillbilly Jim... That's a massive downgrade from Claudius, who is already a massive downgrade from King Hamlet. Imagine how poor young Hamlet's going to take this. If he thought Claudius wasn't good enough, imagine the soliloquies that are going to be birthed from seeing his mother fucking this fat hick. Number nine, Mean Gene Okerlund and Derringer singing rock and roll Hoochie No one needed this. Not even Rick Derringer. Number eight, If You Only Knew, sung by everyone. Which I think is kind of a far cry from Land of a Thousand Dancers a few years earlier. And to this day, I still think the backup vocals are, Please, Hulkster, please. If you only knew. They're talking about Hulk Hogan. Number seven, Stand Back. Vince McMahon. Yes. This, is, this spawned the legendary dance routine from the 37th Annual Slammy Awards. 
But did we really need a song about how Vince is an asshole? We see him out there every week in those tuxedos. We know. Number six, Pile Driver, Coco Beware. I can't believe that this song is this low, but this is the quality of the album. As an adult, I would never equate the pain of love as the same thing as having your spine compressed into the mat. But as a kid, man, fuck, I couldn't wait to get a girl's head between my legs, lift her up, and fucking crush her into the ground. Also, this birthed the batshit insane video of all the wrestlers and nerd McMahon working at the construction site. It's just golden, golden stuff. Number five, crank it up. Jimmy Hart, underrated Jim from the Mouse of the South, which ended up being used by the Young Stallions. I like this song. Number four, the Honky Tonk Man, sung by the Honky Tonk Man. Man, just a dude singing about how much of a prick he is. Plus, he would sing and dance for the matches. I'm a huge mark for the little changes he would make depending on who he's fighting. See, at the time of recording, I, my hypothesis is this when he was fighting Jake because he says, you ought to hear me sing the snakeskin blues. But then later when he's singing it live, he says, you ought to hear me sing the macho man blues. Like today, it's clearly the rheumatoid arthritis blues, but we haven't really heard from him in a while, so we don't know where he's at with the song. Three, this is where Girls in Cars has to be by Robbie Dupree. I wish it was higher, but I can't in good conscience put it above the other two. It has zero to do with Strike Force. I never get the impression Tito could even drive. But listen, I've blasted this song from my car, cruising down the clubbing streets of Montreal too many times to count. Number two. Demolition, Rick Derringer. I mean, like, why would he be redoing Rock and Roll Hoochie Coo when he's creating this masterpiece? Just a heavy-ass song about two guys that are coming to town to beat the shit out of you. It was so badass that like when they came out, we looked past the S&M gear and the useless Japanese man and got on board that these guys were killers. And the number one song of Piledriver, man, what else could it be? Jive Soul Bro from Slick. What an album, right? I spoke before about Honky's dancing, and there was a lot of fucking dancing in the WF in the 80s. But the best dancing by far was the Doctor of Style Slick. Yes, the video was racist with him chowing down on fried chicken. But come on now. Don't tell me you don't have a positive image of this man being placed in the figure four by a seven-foot chick. Now that was a big woman. Whole album is gold. It's a tangent, but I could not talk about it. It's one of those little things that helped build my fandom. All right, Tim Slomka. Aaron, what a great project, and the pods are so well done. I would have to go with 97 over 87 because summer really was that turning point where it showed WWF at least had the chance to keep up with the NWO. While 1987 has two great pay-per-views, the fact that there's only two doesn't allow for much time uh, much time for crap, like the four-team tag team Metromania in 97, if there were more pay-per-views. Uh, and also, 1987 wasn't forced to have 15-minute Hunter matches every pay-per-view. My God, you're right. Plus, 1997 has heel Brett. What's not to love? Thanks again. Thank you, Tim. Uh, your comments have been awesome, and you're killing it whenever I get to hear your voice, so thank you so much. Women's Storyline, 15th out of 36. Look, there's not much here, but I think I bump it just a because normally if they don't have anything, I just put them as the average score or the, me, the, the median score. But there's not much here, so like I want to bump them a bit because they gave 20 minutes to a bunch of girls on one of their only two pay-per-views. And the Jumping Bomb Angels were super promising. The Glamour Girls were not long for this world. And Sensational Sherry was the champion of the world. I can get behind everything they're setting up. It's a shame 88 didn't really bear it out. Royal Rumble, 17th out of 34. It's the median score. No Rumble, no ranking. Historical importance. 
I mean, look, I we have it. I have it second out of thirty six. I think JT and I did this one too on No Holds Barred. I don't think the WWF exists today without Hogan and Andre. WrestleMania 1 was the big risk, but I believe the 87 is the apex of wrestling in terms of mass appeal. To this day, I still have friends who have long since lapsed in their fandom. And when I tell them about projects we do, and I'm like, yeah, no, uh, you know, uh, the best match of all time was rated Bret Hart and Steve Austin and, you know, CM Punk and Cena was in the conversation and Michael's Undertaker. They're like, what? How is it something other than Hogan and Andre? WrestleMania 3 also showed that you could have a massive crowd come out to a wrestling show. Plus, 87, the expansion from one pay-per-view to two. That doesn't seem like a huge leap, but it does set the stage for three the next year, four the next. Yes, 2018 is insane with 22 major shows, but 87 showed that the market could sustain more wrestling on pay-per-view. And, I mean, on top of that, you know, 87 also gives us uh, the birth of many guys who are going to carry the company for years. Now, I know Savage was there before, but this is his, like, push-up to the main, right? Duggan, for better or for worse. Ted DiBiase, Demolition. The 87 is their next, is, is right before, is their debut or they're going up to the next level. If only Morocco had panned out. SummerSlam, none available, so median 16 out of 34. All right, let me hear from Steven Van Kooten. Compared to 1997, 1987 seems almost quaint. It's a good year that helped immeasurably by having only two events to judge on, its, on this particular project. That being said, both WrestleMania and Survivor Series are among the best WWF WBs in history. The feuds are great. Hogan is at the top of his game. Andre is a bastard heel. We all, we all never knew we needed. Bobby Heenan eats up the main event on the mic. Roddy Piper, my favorite wrestler, gets a fitting goodbye by fighting against another one of my favorites, Adrian Adonis. And the tag team scene is ramping up nicely. In short, the year is terrific and deserves a spot at number one, if that's where it landed. I, I did send this out before anybody knew what the uh, rankings, final rankings would be. Back to Steven. As this... Is your last episode or thereabouts. It's the last one. Yeah. I thought I would add my two cents about the project as a whole. I wanted to commend your hard work that has been done and the time invested and no doubt the sacrifices made in other aspects of your life to do it. It was an amazing journey that I followed and look forward to every other Monday. Despite taking on uh, taking a matter, uh, excuse me, despite taking on a matter that is entirely subjective, your transparency and willingness to examine your own process has created something other people value. I, without question, will revisit these episodes in the future. Thank you for hours of entertainment. Thank you, Stephen. Um, it means the world to me that this means the that, that this is that this has any impact on anybody, and that people just the people listen to it is 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 amazing to me. And I appreciate all your participation, and I'm happy. Um, I'm happy that I'm I'm just happy you enjoy it. Thank you. All right. Next category: worst show of the year. Fuck, there's only two. Isn't this sad? Now earlier. I said that I preferred the Survivor Series, but I think I have to put it as the worst show of the year. I think WrestleMania is just that much more important. So every time I've ever done a two-pay-per-view year, I've tried to do a bit of a long-form review and rewatch one of the shows. So here we go. Survivor Series, 1987. And I'll be honest, I find this is really fitting that I'm going to let you in on a bit of the process that like I wrote everything I was going to write uh, until, except for this. And then I sat down to do this, uh, watching Survivor Series 87 another time. And I find it's really kind of fitting that this is the absolute last thing I'm going to do for this series because in many ways, I'm right back to where I started 35 years ago. As a fan in, in September 87, this was no doubt one of the first shows I rented from my local video store. I've sure watched a million times, taped it. There's some cool symmetry here and it really wasn't on purpose. Let's do it. 
Right away, it's really weird to see the whole WWF slideshow before these shows. Like with like uh, with all the voices and if you smell, it, you know, it makes the show feel more quaint that none of that was here yet. First voice we hear is Howard Finkel. He presents Jesse and Gorilla. They come out to a mixed reaction. Jesse Ventura is wearing like 30 dead snakes all over his body and also wearing a stovetop hat. And as a child, it always confused me that this was on Thanksgiving. And I still don't understand why Canada and the U.S. celebrate this on different days. We get a montage of uh, real stars killing jobbers, and it ends with Hogan and Andre standoff from three. I love the Survivor Series concept. I love that you throw these guys out here and let them build storylines throughout the matches. We don't need any dumbass stories uh, about like someone stealing someone's ass cream or, or throwing coffee on them. Instead, people are trying to win matches so they can earn money. And concepts like this and King of the Ring always allowed for the storylines to come out of the matches instead of the matches being a consequence of the storylines. And I think when we lost the competition aspect of the storytelling, we lost a ton of logic that existed within this world. Uh, odd that they, they bring up the rules and how someone can be eliminated. And they're like, and most importantly of all, the ref can stop the match if someone is injured. And it never happens. Uh <laughs> We get an interview segment, Honky screaming with his team. He threatens to give Elizabeth exactly what she deserves. Uh, was Honky planning on giving her a happy home life? They ring the bell in, in the arena and the crowd goes nuts. And I don't know if you guys are like this too, but this is a staple of house shows back in the day. Like you'd be in the building waiting for it to start and then they'd ring the bell. Ding. And that was the, that was the demarcation point that the show was going to start. Everyone would cheer. The lights would go down. It was magic, man. Um, I bet a lot of people today don't understand that Jerry Lawler has always been using Harley Race's music. The people fucking hate Danny Davis. Uh, Honky then marches down, <laughs> like, to the ring. Like, he's actually going to be competitive in the match. And, like, he's got to know how much of a pussy he is, right? Um, and it's weird to see Harley Race high-fiving this jockass. Like, seriously. Interview in the back. It's Savage, Steamboat, Duggan, uh, Jake, and Hacksaw. And Savage at first can't come into the frame because Hacksaw's waving his board around like a maniac. And imagine having all these guys and not letting Jake the Snake talk. Uh, meanwhile, Brutus the Barber Beefcake is clearly experiencing a cocaine overdose in the background. There's just noise. Everybody's screaming. Honk Tonk Man is blasting from the arena. It's just, it's just chaos, but I love it. <laughs> I, I don't even need to hear what they're saying. I know what it is. Steamboat comes out to his bullshit dubbed music. Jake's mullet is out of control. So is Duggan's. I mean, there are more mullets in this match than there are at Motley Crue concerts. Crazy pop for Savage. And I'll be honest, today, I still don't see, like, Elizabeth as a sexual creature. Like, to me, she's like the goddamn Virgin Mary in my eyes. And how do you sexualize the Virgin Mary? Like, if you start banging her, then you have to put up with her loudmouth son. Like, I'll sell what I want in the fucking temple, all right? Crowd is super hot. Savage's team starts with Beefcake. Uh, Savage team starts with Beefcake against Hercules. Uh, not the call I would make if I was Randy Savage. Berea, Gorilla keeps calling him Beefer, which like robs him of any of his remaining dignity. But Beefer tells Herc to kiss his ass. Gets a huge pop. I love the way Hercules waves his arms before running into the ropes. It's like he's swimming through the oxygen in the air for more momentum. Beefer's killing everyone, so I guess it was a good choice. Davis gets pummeled. Jake destroys him. Um, fast tags from the faces and a nice touch uh, Savage has to be told to tag Steamboat I guess he's holding some resentment uh, Davis gets a knee up on Steamboat and 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 then Race comes in and almost drops him like because he picks him up for a scoop it's, it's really kind of a violent spot 
I never also never learned the name of the referee in this match. He's he's pretty ubiquitous in the 80s, but he's the one with the messy hair and he looks like the angriest person on the planet. He's got a ah, deep voice. Hacksaw and Race fight to the outside. They both get counted out. Uh, the feud must continue. I don't think they ever had a blow-off. Um, maybe the Slammy Awards or when they tag-teamed Dom Marie. Uh, Savage is just so smooth. And I love that heel Jesse always loved Savage. He may have questioned him for some of his actions, but you could tell he dug the dude. Honky comes in and gives Savage the weakest kicks I've ever seen. Brutus hits a big knee on Bass for a three-count. Uh, I guess that's why Bass cut the shit out of his head the next year. And what a contrast Hercules' kicks are to Honky. Hercules is legit, man. He tags in Honky. The difference is incredible. But Honky has all the heat. And I love the team of Savage, man. It's like the next, the top faces for the next two, three years. Except Steamboat. Selfish Steamboat. Ricky the Selfish Steamboat. Uh, great spot. Hurt gets punched down but traps Brutus's leg so he can tag in Honky. Savage kicks out early. Um, oh, sorry. Savage goes to climb the ropes and Hebner gives him shit. So like he almost kicks him in the face. Savage knew a traitor when he saw one. Honky, great sell after getting his head smashed. He, like, dances, but he's, like, unconscious. And this is where good commentary really helps a match. So Brutus is in there too long, right? And Gorilla and Jesse dump all over the strategy. Then he gets hooked by Davis and hit with a shake, rattle, and roll and gets eliminated. And Gorilla and Jesse are enhancing the match. Like, they're talking about, look, see? See, he needed to do this. Like, they're really adding color to the match, not making it worse or just saying the things that are happening. They're adding insight. Also, the, the shake, rattle, and roll may be the best, worst finisher of all time. Perfectly in character and just as soft as shit like Honky. I love, too, that Macho gets in trouble against Honky, but basically runs through him to get to a corner. Like, he smashes his body into him like he needed to tag. And then Jesse's like, see, he's smart for tagging. And then Jesse goes, when Honky makes up for ability, he makes up with sheer luck. I mean, look, the canon story of the honky-tonk man is that he sucks. Uh, Herc comes in, levels Jake with some punches. Herc's is the fucking best. He's like, he's like the best and most exciting worker on the heel team. And you forget how fast he used to be. I guess all that chain swinging and trumpet music took a toll on his 8,000-year-old body. Davis does nothing but cheat, which is so egregious because he used to be a ref. Great sell by Davis on the short-arm clothesline from Jake. It looks like it kills him. And then Jake DDTs him and the place loses its mind. Uh, no time to celebrate, though, as Herc leaps in and clotheslines. Now, Gorilla calls it a Pearl Harbor job. And this is where I learned about what Pearl Harbor was because I'm not taught American history here. Truthfully, most of my U.S. history comes from hearing these references, right? Pearl Harbor, Benedict Arnold. Like I'm like, who is this guy? The only Arnold I knew was Kevin Arnold, and he is no traitor. Gorilla calls out Honky for a, a, like a, a nonchalant cover. I love it. The announcers have opinions. They're not afraid to share them. And plus, they were legit experts, so the opinions have weight. You think the opinions of Corey Graves carry any weight? Unless he's talking tattoos or Staten Island skanks, he's talking out of his ass. What's great here, too, is all the guys are working a smart tag format. Great heat on a guy like Jake. You know, he almost, almost gets to the corner, cut off the ring. The crowd is screaming the whole time. It's also weird to hear Jimmy Hart yelling for guys that he doesn't usually manage. Like, he's like, come on, come on, Hercules. Come on, Hercules. You can do it, Hercules. Or, come on, Holly. You got it, Holly. <laughs> it, just, it just doesn't make any sense coming out of his mouth. Hot tag to Ricky Steamboat. He's going crazy on Hercules. I would have loved a series of singles matches between these two in 87. 
Steamboat's tag Savage, big elbow to pin Hercules, and it's down to Savage, Steamboat, and Jake against Honky. Finally, we get Savage and Honky. Crowd is losing it. Savage misses a charge. I love the urgency to Honky's work. Because here, this is where Honky's good. So Savage misses a charge, and you see Honky, like, go into the next gear. He jumps on him. He knows he has to take advantage. Then the faces take over. It's just revenge on this asshole. The the catharsis is great. The crowd is losing it. And Jesse's like, they're trying to torture the Honky Tonk Man. (laughs) Savage starts killing him. Big atomic drop. Honky's out. And he he just runs. He runs away. The faces win. I mean, what a great opener. All action, bell to bell. Everyone over. What more can you ask for? I think if there is a flaw, I think Honky could have taken the pin here. I mean, it was one against three and three killers. I mean, we know the guy's weak. Like, I, I'm not saying he needed to get beat, but it could have happened here. The first great Survivor Series match. Sold the concept and showed that it could come down to an uneven pairing. Because that was a weird thing, too. We get an interview, too, uh, with Andre's team. Andre, Bundy, Gang, Rude, and Reed. Bobby, of course, brings... Bobby is great in these. He's in the center, screaming. Andre won at WrestleMania 3, and Andre says, Hogan, I did it once, I'll do it again. Slick then is like, these gentlemen will not behave as gentlemen. I love Bobby, arms open, all his glory. And then Andre cuts him off and declares that he is there for Hulk Hogan's soul. I guess he's going to murder Hulk Hogan tonight. All Gorilla can say coming out of this is, over a ton of determination. All right, women's match is next, uh, which they call the ladies Survivor Series match. Crowd's a little less excited about this one. Glamour Girls are the World Tag Team Champions. Judy Martin looks like she's 100. Dawn Marie is next. Donna Cristinello uh, looks like she should be teaching grade four. And Sensational Sherry looks legit tough. And then the, the faces. Velvet McIntyre's from Ireland? I didn't know Drew's mom was Irish. You can really see the sadness, too, in Rocket Robin's eyes as she comes out. The Bomb Angels look cool. And Mula gets booed out of the building. And then Jesse goes, Mula at 160 pounds is looking beefy. <laughs> And then he starts bragging about being in the running man. Velvet doesn't wear shoes. I don't know if she doesn't have shoes. Was there some sort of a potato famine happening this year or something? And Drew Mac, uh, Velvet Mac, Drew Mac, <laughs> Velvet McIntyre also feel. I feel like she looks like a female flying Brian. Same bone structure, same hair. As a kid, I thought that the fabulous Mulu was Ted DiBiase's wife, since she had the dollar signs on her boots. Quick tags with the faces. McIntyre working really fast. I like it. And then Jesse's like, this is women's liberation. Whatever that means. Uh, McIntyre rolls up old ass Donna to get her out. I do like that the Glamour Girls wear the bastardized version of the Hart Foundation tights. See, because I always liked that Bret Hart had an equal number of hearts equal to the number of children in his life. And I like that Leilani Kai has only one heart as her ovaries are obliterated. Raw, Rock and Robin beats... Don Marie with a cross body. The Bomb Angels come in and they are wowing everyone, Jesse and Gorilla included. Great intensity from them. And I started to notice that this match is very different than the first match. The women here wrestle a completely different style and that's really interesting. It's a different product and it adds variety to the show. Sherry then puts Rock and Robin right out. Um, it's probably good she's out of here before I make any off-color remarks. Velvet McIntyre then hits a really cool... Like spinning high cross body. She jumps and then spins her body in the air. I thought it was really neat. Mula comes in, gets booed. Get her the fuck out of here. And Gorilla goes, Mula can do it all, can't she? <laughs> Except be a decent human being, right, Gorilla? Judy Martin drags in Mula, and I fucking want to believe she's stiffened the shit out of her. Like they double clothesline her and get her old ass out of here. 
Imagine Mula, it was old here, and she'd be champion 12 years later. Veld McIntyre's back in. She's impressing me here. She's unique, moves and acts differently, really, than anyone I've ever seen. And none of the sadness typically found in the Irish. I wonder if it's just the men. The glamour girls keep throwing people into their corner. It feels like sound strategy. Uh, great double hook, uh, underhook suplex by Leilani Kai on one of the bomb angels. And then she just bridges out. Uh, young Jimmy Corderas has to wave off the bell from being rung. McIntyre, giant swing, Sherry. Jerry threatens to publish a poetry book. Uh, not Jerry. Jesse threatens to publish a poetry book for some reason. Victory on Sherry and Velvet eliminates her. And see, now Jesse... Jesse jumps in as like, see, that has to shoot Velvet up to the number one contender. Great attention to detail. It makes things that happen in these matches feel important. And that's how you build a storyline out of a match. One of the bomb angels gets Kai in a body scissors and they undulate around as though one of them was wearing a strap on. Velvet then tries a victory roll on Kai, but Kai slingshots her into the ropes onto her back for a three. I thought it was a good finish. Uh, Kai then gets beat by a top rope crossbody. I, I don't... I don't understand how Judy Martin is the last person from the heel team. I mean, at best, at best, she's third in the pecking order. And even then, I haven't seen enough of Donna Christianello's milky tits to really judge one way or the other. The Bomb Angels killer dead at some double team moves. Uh, they drop kick Jimmy Hart off the apron for the biggest pop of the match. They pin Judy Martin. Here are the remaining survivors. Man, this is something different. It was interesting. I don't think it's a great match, but I think it's a lot of fun. And none of these women expose the business in any way. And I was really into Velvet McIntyre. I've come around on the Irish. Craig DeGeorge is in the back with the Hart Foundation and their partners. It's just chaos. But it's so weird to see Demolition happy. Dino Bravo still doesn't look like he fits in. Tama, though, is having the time of his life, flexing his muscles and bobbing his head. Uh, Jimmy comes in late as he was with the Glamour Girls, and all he says is, somebody's going to get hurt! And they're like, where are the Bolsheviks? And like, the Bolsheviks are in the, in the ring getting ready to sing the anthem. I'll be honest, it's so weird uh, for Slick to be pimping Russian nationalism rather than hoes. Because hoes in the United States would be so much easier to pimp in the 1980s than Russian nationalism. Uh, Nikolai really disappoints me here. He only sings one verse of the anthem. You think Gorbachev is going to accept that shit? The whole team comes out. Jesse compares demolition to the stalkers in Running Man, really pushing that he... Did you know he was in Running Man? Um... I'm unsure who the head of the table is between Haku and Tama, but probably Haku, but who knows? Tama's fucking badass too. Bret Hart uh, has no hearts on his tights this time. Uh, to me, this is a clear representation that he resents his kids for binding him to Julie forever. We go to the back, Strike Force is interviewing, and they're wearing clearly heterosexual headbands. Dynamite Kid is slapping everybody's shoulders like he just didn't spend the afternoon bullying the shit out of them. Martella's like, our blood is running red hot. Uh, unity is our victory. Uh, I hope Martel's blood is running hot because otherwise he's fucking dead. Then Jesse's like, the faces are all too pretty. The good guys start coming out. Davey trots out that poor mutt, terrified. Of course, Jesse trash talks the dog. He's like, Matilda's never been in shape. <laughs> no, he had a fucking fat shame a dog. Girls in Cars plays. Huge pop for them. Um, I, I wonder at this point if Chico and Martel realize they're going to be feuding until they both die. There's so many guys in and around the ring. Nikolai starts with Martel. Great energy. I've never seen this out of Nikolai. Um, and Nikolai looks like he could hurt you, which is cool. Zubov is like more the, excuse me, Zukov is more like the guy who would rape you, uh, where Nikolai will hurt you. And I have to feel that Stalin was probably against rape, but who knows with that fucking bank robber. Tito hits a flying jalapeno on Zukov, and um, the Bolsheviks are gone early. But then 
axes right in and kills Tito. So many quick tags. Jacques Rougeau, explosive offense. Even D'Lo Bravo can't slow down this thing. The faces are tagging every 20 seconds. Haku comes in. Offense looks amazing on Dynamite. Axe and smash, pound Roma into the mat. The net, into the mat, excuse me. And even the heels are in with breakneck speed. I also love um, the toe-to-toe sequence with um, Roma and Tama. Jesse goes, the young stallions look like geldings. Come on, Jesse, who's going to know that reference? Jacques Rougeau misses a crossbody and, and uh, Axe pins him. I love that. I love when falls come out of mistakes. Uh, speaking of mistakes, Jesse keeps calling him Toma <laughs> instead of Tama. And Gorilla corrects him and he's like, he'll be Toma if I say he's Toma. Anvil powers Jim, uh, powers Jim Powers up. Like, he's got him on the ground and he puts him in a standing backbreaker position. I, it was so, it was clearly just a deadlift. It was really impressive. And then Haku jumps off the top and chops him. Great spot. Greg Valentine comes in, finally all in red. I guess he was a secret Leninist. Really nice gut wrench suplex by Bravo on Roma. Seriously, how great is a match when Dino Bravo is even running on all cylinders instead of running for his life? Demolition, then Bludgeon's Dynamite, get themselves disqualified. I guess that's as good a method as any to get them out of the match. Brett then comes in and fights Dynamite. You know it's going to be good. Brett hits Dynamite with one of the best pile drivers I've ever seen. It looks so good. Uh, Then Brett does a great ram into the post. He's really good, this Bret Hart guy. (laughs) Islanders, for me, have the best gear in the ring. Uh, And that's with all the classic gear and Valentine's red underwear. Martel comes in, gets him. uh, Crowd's going nuts. Flying forearm from Tito, who has Anvil beat, but Bret Hart jumps in with perfect timing to break it up at two. And then Anvil just pins Tito off the flying elbow. Tito's cell job on the flying elbow is great. And then Jesse, of course, is like, now the hearts get a shot because they beat the champs. Again, good stuff. Then Jesse goes on a weird rant talking about his late great-grandfather, Efren the Body, who came over with the Pilgrims. Am I to understand that Jesse thinks he is three generations between he and the Pilgrims? Heels are starting to take over with the champs out. Haku, awesome thrust kick. And both announcers love it. Because get used to it, guys, because you're going to see it forever. See, you can cheer against a team and still get them over. Because he's, he's, they're talking about how the young stallions, like Jesse doesn't want the young stallions to win, but he keeps commenting how difficult they are to beat. Brett and Tama kill powers. It looks like they're just jumping on him. Brett with that great suplex where he throws his legs out from under him. I know I'm missing all kinds of shit, but it's just nonstop. And like, I want to actually watch it. Valentine's strikes are good too. They look like they hurt. It's over 15 minutes now, so for sure he's warmed up. Everyone headbutting Haku. What blatant disrespect. But it leads to what I think my favorite spot in the match is. So Davey hits Haku with a great suplex. He's on the ground. Dynamite jumps off the second rope of the flying headbutt, but hurts his own head headbutting Haku. Then Haku gets up and just kicks him in the face for the three count. I love, love, love those types of finishes. Not everything has to be a formula where you see the finisher. I, I love it. Down to the Bees and Stallions against uh, the Hearts and the Islanders. Awesome dropkick from Roma. I could see watching this match and leaving it thinking, man, Paul Roma's going to be a big star. Uh, and Dream seems still there too because Bravo gets some offense on Powers. I know I've talked him up a lot in this match, but it might be the best Dino Bravo's ever been on a pay-per-view. Jim Powers gets beaten into the corner. The rest of the faces come flying in to save him. Powers and fights out against Valentine. But the heels are great at cutting off the ring. Bravo hits the side suplex and then does this weird step to tag. Like it's like a dance step to tag Valentine. Valentine goes for the figure four. And then Roma 
with a perfect jump off the top rope sunset flit eliminates the dream team. I think this was the moment. Like the dancing sidestep with the tag, Valentine was like, you know what? Fuck off. I'm not I'm not tagging with this dude anymore. Nice jumping flying knee by Brunzel, but Gorilla just wants to see the drop kick. Haku jumps higher than the ropes on a leg drop but misses. The match is starting to slow down here, but now it's not as fast, but they're upping the psychology, so it's interesting. I love how Bret Hart, when he does a cover, all his weight are on the shoulders. The hand is stretching up the arm, and the rest of his body is on the shoulders. Little great detail. It's the angry ref for this one, too, and his shirt has become untucked. Like, And because the rest of him is a disheveled mess, he now looks homeless. Cute, um, cute little spot here where like Haku throws a drop kick and Jesse's like, wow, he's 300 pounds. And Gorilla's like, I'd like to see the Anvil do that. And within two seconds, Anvil does. It was great. All kinds of chaos. Brunzel picks up Brett for a slam. And then Haku drop kicks Brett. But Brunzel rolls through and pins him. Brunzel jumps for joy. I mean, why would he not? They just beat the former champs. Tom of those in, he takes advantage of a hurt Brunzel. Jesse calls Brunzel dumb. I just want the ref to tuck his fucking shirt in. I could live without the nerve hold towards the end of this match. That would be helpful. Islanders are left alone, but still look like total basses who could totally kill you and kidnap your dog. And I feel Gorilla is really undermining the man every time he calls him Jimmy Powers. Hey, Jimmy! Jimmy Powers! Great power slam by Haku on Rama. Rama. Now I'm messing it up. The faces jump in, but that allows for Toma and Haku to take advantage of Paul Roma. Tama then jumps up to the sky for an elbow drop, but misses. Brunzel messes up a backdrop, but then Gorilla even covers him, which I think is great. He's like, oh, look how tired he is. I mean, it's it's close to 40 minutes now they've been out there. Uh, and then Brunzel hits his patented drop kick. I'm assuming Gorilla was with him at the patent office. We get B magic, and the Bs pin the Islanders to win. Crank it up plays. Man, what a great showing from the Bs, the Stallions, and the Islanders. So much fun. You know, I keep saying action start to finish, but all these matches feel like sprints. Easy four and a half stars. I don't think this is like the best match of all time or anything. But clearly one of my favorites. Now, Jesse has this really awkward intro that he's like, you know what I'd like to see? I'd like to see how the million dollar man would spend Thanksgiving. <laughs> Whatever. So DiBiase's in a car. He's shitting on people for being thankful. Is he thankful for anything? The money, sure, but what the money can do for him. And then we get the montage of all the people he's humiliated. Um, the kid, the first one is the kid failing at nine push-ups. And really, it's, that's not unfair. The kid did fail. He didn't do it. The kid says he did his best, but he didn't do the job. Okay, the basketball kid. Okay, he kicks the ball away. Such a great heel move. And then he's like, look, when you don't do the job right, you don't get paid. I don't know if the kid was in on it or acting, but his the kid's body language as he went to his mom was perfect uh then ted dibiase makes a skinny ass old woman bark like a dog imagine this is the least offensive making a woman bark like a dog segment in WWF history now ted's in his house i don't know if this is vince's house but someone's got to do something about that wallpaper like where are the queer eye guys they got to fix this mess it is a goddamn mess we get rvd kissing feet and then we get the pool skit where he goes to a public pool and pays to get all the kids kicked out like, why on earth would Ted want to swim in all that piss? There are real private pools. Ted DiBiase doesn't have a pool. Virgil does scream at the kids, which is fun. And uh, he, Ted DiBiase laughs a million times <laughs> every, every two seconds. But whatever. It's, it's a cool montage of getting the character over. 
So then we cut back and Jesse Gorilla says, let's go to another one of our colleagues, Craig DeGeorge. But it's always Craig DeGeorge? Why are we saying another if it's always him? So he's interviewing the Honky Tonk Man on that fucking platform. Honky's still drawing great heat. He, guys, fucking Honky's got some balls calling out Hulk Hogan. Nothing new. He's the greatest. Nuclear heat. Everyone comes out to Rick Rude's music at first. Actually, it's just Rude and Bundy. Uh, but there's no one less appropriate for Rick Rude's stripper music than King Kong Bundy. Rude is wearing every road sign known to man on his tights. And there's Jive Soul, bro. I love Slick's strut. Just the way he's walking to the ring is perfect. I feel like Gang in his heart like wanted to dance, didn't feel right, all dicked out in denim. He's like, I need a blue leotard with yellow trim. Heenan does the original Paul Heyman introduction by introducing Andre. Crazy heat for Andre as he comes out for the main event. Bobby calls Andre the next champion. He wasn't wrong. Hogan's team going nuts in the back. Hogan's headbutting Bam Bam Bigelow. Oliver Humperdinck has no business in this main event picture. And then Hogan's like, I've done everything to cover my back, dude. Yeah, Paul Orndorff's right there, all right? And then Hogan's also standing in front of everyone as they're trying to talk, which is weird. Don Morocco's like, all the training is done. I'm here for a good time. Maybe it's time to replace this man if he's just here to party. And then Hogan runs over and molests Bam Bam Bigelow. Humperdick, like his face, he looks like one of the rock trolls from Frozen. We're now coming out. Uh, Bam Bam Bigelow's music sounds. It sounds like the intro to the Cosby show. Uh, also, The Rock is apparently, a, Don Morocco is a fill-in for uh, superstar Billy Graham. What an upgrade, right? And then Jesse's the one who's like, you know, I don't know if Hogan can trust Paul Wonderful. Paul Mr. Wonderful, rightfully so. And like, if if we replaced, if there was a fill-in for superstar Graham, Ken Patera's arm is fucked up. Can we not get a fill-in for him too? Hogan finally comes out, giant American flag, and he's fighting one Frenchman and four Americans. Crowd's losing their minds. Heel team is insane size-wise. No one should be able to beat Andre, Bundy, and gang. Rude and Morocco start. Morocco, best shape of his life. Orndorff comes in. Offense looks great. Nice and snug. The faces are killing Rick Rude. Great intensity from Hogan. Some nice urgency to his work. And they're really working the crowd into a frenzy. Of course, Ken Patera fucks it up. He comes in and knocks Rude into his corner. After he climbs the ropes in the most awkward way possible. Kind of with this weird thing, this weird jump in. Morocco hits a really high drop kick. Fuck, no missing leg days from Don here. I like Reed. Reed. Butch Reed's facials are great here. It's all like, why is this happening to me? What did I do to get involved with this? Uh, Hogan drops a leg on Reed and he's gone. Hogan hugging his whole team, but then Andre's just waiting for him. But then Joey Morella's like, no, no, Hogan made a tag with that hug. And Jesse tears Joey Morella. He's always trying to save him. Patera gets in there. I hope he gets murdered. Why the fuck isn't Ken Patera wearing knee pads? He's not too old not to. I mean, and I love that Patera comes in to fight Andre, and Andre looks at him and just leaves. He's not worth his time. Uh, Gang comes in. He's got such shitty gear, that black leotard. Ah, uh, you know, I bet he looked at that in the mirror. He's like, hey, maybe if I was black. Um, Orndorff and Steve Austin. Uh, Orndorff throws some Steve Austin-like elbow drops. Morocco tumbles around, tags Ken Patera. I've been shitting on Patera, but he's actually pretty energetic here. I don't know what that thing is on his arm, though. Like, it looks like the type of cast that Sir Isaac Newton would have designed. Did they have no other means of healing this man's arm? Patera's suit also looks like a lady's bathing suit. 
Double clothesline, but Gang falls on top. Patera's gone. Who's going to be the whipping boy now? Bam Bam getting louder and louder pops every time he comes in. Crowd is rabid. Orndorff is killing Rude. But then Rude rolls him up with a handful of tights. Then Hogan Hogan busts out a running, jumping knee on Rude, which is cool. Then he throws Rude over the top rope, drops down, and like Rude runs right into a Morocco power slam and gets pinned. And all the while, Hogan's like standing in between so the heels don't come in. It's a good spot. Gang splashes. Morocco eliminates him after Andre cheats. Morocco sells it like death. The heels slow down and work over Bam Bam. And I just noticed that King Kong Bundy only has one knee pad. What on earth is going on there? Hogan and Andre finally go at it. The crowd is going wild. Great spot is there. They're just they're chopping each other so violently that it's like it's overlapping. Uh, Bundy then trips Hogan, pulls him out of the ring. He, he, Hogan fights Bundy to the, up the rail. He slams the gang. He tries to get in the ring. Bundy stops him. He slams Bundy, but gets counted out. Am I not? In, am I insane to want to question uh, Morella's justification here? Like he could clearly see what was going on. Hogan, of course, won't leave because he's a big fucking baby. So they have to announce that if he doesn't leave, his team loses. Hogan stomps and pouts his way to the back. And now Bam Bam's left alone against Bundy, Gang, and Andre. Bundy fights uh, fights hard but gets beat by a slingshot. Bam Bam is doing a great job selling the exhaustion. It's probably because he's actually fucking exhausted. He's been out there for like 25 minutes. Gang misses a jump from the top rope and Bam Bam barely gets over but pins him. And then Andre comes in and kills Bam Bam. Bam Bam's tumbling around and, and Gorilla's like, those are speed maneuvers. Um, <laughs> that was funny. Bam Bam charges, Andre evades. Couple of shoulder blocks, his lame-ass suplex wins. I love that Finkel, when Andre wins, goes, and the soul survivor. He gives it like a some depth, right? It's the first and last time that company uses the word soul survivor, right? Match is great. Once again, nonstop action. Good surprise ending. Star-making performance from Bam Bam. And then Hogan comes out, does his bullshit. But Andre yells about how he's the winner. And that ends the show. I thought this was a really fun show to revisit. I think it's probably still my favorite Survivor Series ever. Uh, it goes by in a breeze. The action's nonstop all night. It's such a testament to how o- over everyone is and how great professional wrestling can be with simple stories. All right, best show of the year, WrestleMania, for all the reasons we talked about earlier. It doesn't win by default either. WrestleMania 3 is a classic, and if you haven't seen it, you should take the time. It is worth it. All right, let's do the uh, five worst wrestlers of the year, five best, and get out of here. Once and for all, five worst wrestlers. Bit of context. Um, when I'm doing this, in a normal year, I if it, in order to qualify for best or worst wrestler, you have to have fought on a quarter of the shows. But with two shows, I kind of made it a hard rule that you have to have at least two appearances to qualify here. I mean, it's only two shows, right? These were the same rules for 85 and 86. So let's get down to it. The fifth worst wrestler of the year, Hercules. Ah, not his fault. All the shitty guys didn't qualify. I mean, he's he's got a good outing with Dickhead Oregon, but he's pretty good at the Survivor Series. There's just not enough guys who suck. I like Hercules. Number four, the natural Bush, Butch Reed. Bush Reed. <laughs> um, it's the squash match with Coco that hurts him, but he's quite good in the Survivor Series main event. All three minutes he's in. Number three, Harley Race. I mean, why wouldn't that fucking dog bow? It's crazy these guys are getting punished, but that's what happens when you're in the worst men's match at Survivor Series. Number two, Jake Roberts. See, this feels familiar. The match with Honky underwhelms, but he's good at the Survivor Series. And then the worst wrestler, Honky Tonk Man. No, that doesn't make any sense. I'm going to switch those. Jake is worst. Honky Tonk Man is second worst because he's great at the Survivor Series. 
right? I don't think Honky's as good a worker as Jake, but his heat is off the charts, so he doesn't deserve last place. Jake's last, Honky's second last. No one deserves last. It's a great year. Five best wrestlers of the year. Number five, Greg the Hammer Valentine. How did this happen? This system is flawed. Fucking Jake taking Honky down. This should be Honk Tonk Man. All right, number four, Rick Martell. Uh, good match uh, at the uh, as the Can-Ams at WrestleMania 3 and great stuff in the Mega Tag at Survivor Series. Number three, Tito Santana. I mean, I, again, s- similar. I think he's really good at the six-man at WrestleMania with the hearts, uh, with uh, the Bulldogs against the hearts and Danny Davis. He's great in the tag match at Survivor Series. Special bonus here. I don't know if anybody li- else is like this, but Strike Force was the first team that were the champions when I started watching. So in many ways, it's like they're o- they'll always be my tag team champions. So much so that I totally overspent to get the Jax Classic Superstar Strike Force 2-pack back in early 2020. <laughs> they'll always just have a place in my heart. I can't believe they couldn't get past their differences. It's like when my parents got divorced, but like more my fault. Number two, I have a tie. It's Randy Savage and Ricky Steamboat. Because this is where it gets tricky. Because they're all in the same matches together. And are equally important to each other. Right? To each match. So the Mania match is an all-timer. And they're both great at killing hockey. So they finish second. And the number one wrestler of 1987. I'm going to cop out. But fuck it. It's a tie again. Because it's Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. But for the same deal. Just incredible storytelling from both all year. And it leads to two great matches. It's what wrestling is all about. So... This has been a journey, my friends. One quick stat. Some quick stats before we say goodbye forever. 3,000 matches. 3,005 matches across 410 shows. Right? That's a lot. Okay? Uh, I've written 258,680 words about this. (laughs) Man, I wish I had this much commitment to anything. Of the matches that we watched, of the 3,000 matches, 12% are great, 41% good, 30% 30% kind of blah, 17% bad. In all, 53% at least good, 47% boring or bad. And I guess something that's good 53% of the time justifies my fandom, right? Right? In case anyone thought I was too liberal with my five-star rankings, I want to tell you I have 42 matches that clock in at that number. But 42 out of 3,000, not bad. By contrast, only 26 matches are at zero stars. So the high, there's more high highs than low lows. I mean, I could do a whole podcast on stats, but I'm sure I've already talked long enough. A little over 40 hours, actually. So I guess if you want to plow through a work week, uh, re-download this and go at it, Haas. Also, just a heads up, I'm not doing 2021, right? Uh, as of this writing, I'm struggling to get through it. It's rough. Like, I try to put it on, I fall right asleep. Uh, you know, and I'm just not enjoying it. And I really wanted to end this on a high note. I don't want the, the end of this project to me blasting uh, the company for killing NXT or making me love Roman Reigns, right? I think this is the perfect way to end this project. In many ways, this project reignited my fandom. And in many ways, it bludgeoned it. Like, it, there's good and bad, right? I'm happy that after all of it, I can still get excited to sit down and watch the 1987 Survivor Series again. This was such a special time to jump on board this great fandom. I think it's a testament to 1987's strength that now, 35 years later, I'm still a fan. But what a cocktail of stuff 1997 was. We had the biggest match ever, incredible characters populating the show front to back, music albums, Slammy Awards where I almost got to see Rick Rude nude. 
It was a special time. I'll never, ever forget sitting anxiously um, through the overnight's lotto numbers, just waiting for superstars to come on Saturday morning. Or being allowed to stay up late because Saturday night's main event was on. I'll never forget believing it was real and thinking that Andre was probably going to kill Hulk Hogan. I'll never forget my dad surprising me and taking me to the Montreal Forum to see Hogan. We cheered like crazy and had an in-depth discussion about who and what the one-man king was. I don't know. Maybe I hang on to this fandom because it reminds me of a more innocent time. But I know, to this day, uh, if, I, if I hear Gorilla, Jesse, or Vince on a Saturday afternoon, I am washed over with comfort and a sense that this is something I love and this has been a worthwhile hobby for my entire life. This was the year that was. And I'm so, so happy to join you for it. Yeah.